We're back here for uh, another episode discussing the week's acquisition headlines, and I'm joined again by my friend Matt McGregor. So Matt, just say hi. How's it going? Hey. Thanks for having me on, Eric. <laughs> yeah, it's always good to see you. Too. The first headline here I want to get to is a big one. I've been waiting for this one for months, and it's Brown tapped for Pentagon acquisition chief inside defense. And uh, so that's obviously Michael Brown, the former DIU head. And it seems they're calling him here in these articles. He has a reputation as the quote, China hawk. As, and that was part of his participation in like the, the CFIUS revamping. And they say, here's a good quote from a defense news article, quote, while Brown does not have experience running major defense programs, sources say the Biden team wanted to bring in someone with experience outside DOD for the ANS job and point to his software background as useful. So what's, what's your uh, first thoughts there on Michael Brown as the, the pick for ANS? Yeah, I was curious to see if they would go with somebody more traditional. I think that's where some people's heads was at, or, or was that at, on, on the ANS pick. Really encouraging, I think, to see Michael Brown, who's an innovator, who understands the, uh, the defense business space, but also the the small business uh, space because he's been out there with DAU interacting and engaging with Silicon Valley and all these non-traditionals. So I think we have to be pretty happy that he's the pick. And uh, yeah, he definitely understands the China problem. His paper on China's technology transfer strategy was pretty, pretty interesting and, and insightful. So look forward to seeing what he does. Yeah, definitely. I was, we've been hearing some whispers about who was in the final running. And when I heard Mike mm-hmm. Brown, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I just, I didn't actually think it was going to happen. I think that's, we've been hearing folks talk about this valley of death problem. And I feel like installing Michael Brown is really like a signal, like, Hey, we're, we're taking this seriously on the commercial technology and the merging technology. So definitely excited to see where that's going. And Mike McCord again is, we'll be back at comptroller. It looks like, which any thoughts there? Yeah, he was, I was in the Pentagon when he was there last and I thought he did a great job. I think he knows the Hill environment and I'm hoping we can enlist him in our uh, PBBE reform effort. So we'll let him get on board first before we hit him with that. But no, I, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I think he'll be, he'll be great, uh, great to have back in the department. So the next headline here is the RQ-180 drone will emerge from the shadows as the centerpiece of an air combat revolution from the drive. And this one's actually really hard to quote. I don't know if you read the whole thing. It was pretty, it was like yeah. a kind of long form piece and I don't know exactly how I would summarize it, but it seems like this all kind of, again, starts with the GMTI kind of mission, the ground motion tracking indicators. And that had been done in the J-STARS, and now it's in the Global Hawk and also the E-11. But I guess the issue there is, right, it can't penetrate into enemy airspace and have a hope of survival. So I guess like what they're hoping for this RQ-180 drone, which is coming out of Lockheed Skunk Works, is basically a stealth drone that flies high it's a flying wing design and here's a kind of the summary from the drive quote it's important to note that while reconnaissance side of the mission uh set gets all the attention we believe the rd's potential ability to work as a high-flying network node and information gateway is likely even more important it seems like this is going to be one of these kind of linchpins here in how they're going to be actually operating and doing targeting in theater and it's going to be like the centerpiece for data that's going to be able to coordinate assets in theater, but then also be able to communicate back with headquarters via satellite. And Starlink looks to be like a, a big resilient piece of that picture in order to, to keep the, the whole thing moving. But what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right. I think space on the whole space is going to be probably the the biggest piece to connect all the dots, especially once you have those LEO constellations with with all those comp satellites uh, using using commercial technology. But for I know like for ABMS, there was always a vision for having a space layer and an air layer uh, and then the ground layer. So I think you need to have that air layer if for some reason your space assets are denied or there's some issue where you're not able to to use them in the way you want. So I think it is, I think you do need this, but I definitely hope they can keep it from being too exotic. That's my only fear is like the global Hawks, each global Hawk was about 220 million. And I don't know exactly how many of these they're going to, they're going to buy. But when you start buying big fleets of this, it's almost like you're buying a bunch of extra F-35s or B-21. So 
it, it starts to, I would much rather in a way almost have them just when they need to do the connecting, just send up 50 smaller attributable ones versus this thing looks pretty high tech. So I guess we'll see how much it costs in the end, but that's my only, that's my only fear. I think you definitely need the air layer, but how you solve that problem, I think you have different ways of doing it, but. Yeah, it seemed like they really wanted to push a lot of the processing to the, the edge there and put that on board the RQ180. And I guess some of that, you wouldn't really necessarily be able to do that with these smaller, lower cost, tradable type things that might support the networking. So potentially that's one factor, but I suppose it's also what's the resilience of your ability to communicate with, with large legacy satellites. Those could be pretty vulnerable. If Starlink or some, some kind of method like that, then potentially you don't need the same. I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's where I'm curious. I'll be, I'll be curious to see how many they buy. Because you're right, we definitely need that capability to be able to share critical information and keep all the nodes of the battle space and the kill chain connected. But yeah, what what can be done in space once we have those proliferated LEO constellations and then what you actually need in the air over different theaters, I think, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they communicate the need for that once they start procuring these and then see what Congress's reaction is. One of the related headline here is AMC eyes self-defense for cargo tanker planes. And that's from Breaking Defense. And the quote here is tankers and cargo aircraft could in future carry their own counter air missiles or even launch missile carrying drones to help them survive ever more sophisticated enemy air defenses. Air Mobility Command General Jacqueline Van Ovost said. <laughs> so she likes this gremlins idea that's coming out of uh, DARPA, where they basically have a bunch of smaller drones that have their own missiles and they can release them and catch them from a C-130. I don't think they've successfully demonstrated it yet, but they're trying it out. And it seems like, you know, similar to what the RQ-180 is looking to do, that's all assuming that you can get FUs into the fight over the vast distances of the Pacific and whatever theater you're in. So you're going to need these tankers. And those might be like the vulnerable linchpin to that whole plan. So now they're thinking about, hey, this is these are big plat platforms, right? They're expensive platforms. And the benefit of that is we can upgrade them with all sorts of countermeasures. So what's your thinking here? No, I think for the South China Sea fight, there's no way you can do everything you want to do without having some sort of tanker support. If we have our fighters in Japan or Guam, the F-35s have 1,500 mile range, and that's probably not going to be enough to get you to the target and back without some type of, air, of tanker support. And if you need to do anything where you're going further in, you're going to you're definitely going to need that. So somehow you have to have the ability to refuel these exotic fighter jets that we that we have. And people have talked about a stealth tanker, so I think that's probably not in the near future. So this is probably the best option you have, some type of more enhanced self-protection system than flares or some of the things that they already use to make you a little more resilient, a little bit more survivable. But I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be a tanker pilot in a, in a war on the South China Sea flying one of those around. <laughs> I don't care how many drones you have supporting you. Those guys are going to feel like the the bombers of World War II, <laughs> potentially. Right. Battle, Battle of Britain or something, yeah. So the next one here that we got is the U.S. system created the world's most advanced military. Can it maintain an edge? And that's in the Washington Post. And I was actually pretty stoked to see that because it's talking about some of our uh, favorite subjects here. And Bill Greenwald was quoted. And he says, quote, the pace of military innovation slowed in the 1960s with the advent of a centralized procurement system that prioritized performance and predictability over speed. That didn't matter much back then because the Soviet Union wasn't moving fast either, as Bill Greenwald, who works on the acquisition reform as a staffer and now for now deceased Senator John McCain, describes in a new research paper. And so we just had a little event on not just that research paper, but your own at MITRE's or at MITRE. Happy to see these topics about resourcing and the, these real hard institutional problems actually make it into the Washington Post. Yeah, that was great. I always like to see Bill get Bill get pressed because his thinking is very evolved and he has, a, he has experience with the department as well as the Hill that not too many people, I think, have that magic formula. And then on top of that, he has a pretty innovative mindset. So yeah, always love to see him get pressed and the fact that they 
read that paper, which was really an awesome paper with Dan Pat. I thought it was great. A couple of takeaways I took, things that they highlighted that I thought were interesting was that the uh, slowdown in U.S. innovation was due to the Pentagon's focus on long-term investments in small exotic weapon systems, things I, I keep saying over and over. And sometimes we, we try to do these really you know high-end high-end systems and we want them to solve every problem but then they don't always you know play out the way that we want and so you're stuck with gaps capability gaps that you didn't anticipate or are dangerous in, in some missions and that the difference was china the way that they've been tackling those problems is they go after many things so it's not they just don't hand it over to one prime contractor and say northrop go solve this problem for me and come back in five years they give it to four or five of their vendors and say, go tell me how you would solve this problem and, and then see what solutions they come back with. That's That costs more money in a, in a lot of cases and it's more risky. And I think it's not con- congruent with the way that we, we typically like to do acquisition, but I would definitely like to see more of that. That was one of the things that I hope people take away from this is that we need to broaden the, our, our base so that we're not reliant on single vendors or very small numbers of vendors for things that if for some reason their engineering doesn't come together, we have this like huge capability gap that we have to deal with for years and years. And then the, the other take that I that, that I had out on this one was the fact that the civil military fusion, I like that they made the point that, yeah, China has not solved all of that. And also that the U.S. should probably not pursue that. I think you made this point, Eric, in one of your posts. Everybody says, oh, civil military fusion, China's one of China's greatest strengths in this whole fight. And you, I think, made the point about, no, actually, competition is a much better way. Let the free market you know, decide. Let's not try to merge our all these institutions together that are not natural fits anyway, but rather let them play out their greatest strengths. So, so I really, I thought that was two good points out of that article. Yeah. When you were talking about China, it's funny that you said that they don't really, I guess, centralize all decisions and go for the one biggest, best thing with the one vertically integrated prime. And... <laughs> So that, that takes me to my next uh, article here. Lockheed cites great power competition with China in bid to consolidate engine market, responsible statecraft. So the quote here, I thought this was pretty funny. Everybody's using great power competition to squeeze their own lemon. But Lockheed CEO spoke in unusually blunt terms about the company's justification for why regulators should allow the acquisition to move forward. China's weapons industry is vertically integrated. Indeed, much of it is state-owned. So Americans' weapons firms need to consolidate in the interests of national security. And it always just comes back to this bigger, consolidate more. What is bigger? You get your economies of scale. That works. And there seems to be that perception of China actually being that way. But I just don't. And certainly they do have their large state-owned enterprises. But I just have this feeling that they don't operate in this kind of monopsonistic, monopolistic kind of way that we imagine they do. And we try to emulate or have been trying to emulate since we've tried to emulate the Soviets back in the 60s. Yeah, I think you're right. You can make the point that your friend Jordan's a much, much greater China expert than I am. But I think you can make the point that they have their state champions and they have you know, their SOEs that they fund and try to you know, prop up. But I think they also take advantage of commercial technology much better. So I think that's the difference is, yeah, they might have some state-owned enterprises and things that they're doing on their own, but they're also tapping into all of the other innovation that's done more organically, might all be subsidized to some extent or in varying ways. They have a thriving commercial sector. And so the the fact that we don't take take advantage of that as well is probably our weakness and one of the big differences. So... Yeah, this merger, I'm real skeptical about these kind of things because I, I don't think they ultimately, what I think the CEO, what do you say, it's a boon for U.S. innovation. Yeah, I don't think so. Whenever you do these kind of things where you merge and the competition or the diversity that you may have gotten in the engine market uh, for a solution that Lockheed would bid on, now it's pretty much if Lockheed bids on something that requires a jet project product, they're gonna they're gonna go internally, right? They're not they're not even gonna think about competing it amongst other vendors or new commercial entrants. They already have their they already have it set that this is their their one entity to go to. So I think that's where this vertical uh, consolidation I think plays out as a weakness more than a a benefit in the end. Yeah, definitely. I'm with you on that. On back on the China front, it's not clear to me. I've had the impression, especially in space, that they've been like trying to get 
a lot of like new upstarts and, and get real kind of competition in there. But then I'm not really sure if that's, if that's going to turn around or not. And we've, we saw like Jack Ma, he got into a little bit, he disappeared yeah. for a little while and now he's back. <laughs> but it seems like I don't, we don't really know if that whole system might revert back in on itself. The contradictions of like a, a more open market economy and their own kind of authoritarian style on the civil military fusion. Are they good at integrating commercial technology or do they just have the posture of we've been trying to, we've been so far behind. We've, we're always a fast follower. We're always integrating someone else's stuff, whether that's like our commercial or America's proprietary stuff. And it seems like they were just in that mindset and it got them to experiment and try things out and reverse engineer and be comfortable in that frame. And we're not there yet. We're still in the kind of predicting control like we're on the frontier, so we need to make these decisions in this way. And potentially that's a little bit less innovative than the ability to move fast. Yeah, I think to Bill, to Bill and Dan's paper, competing was it competing in time? They, I thought they made a good case about the fact that China has, to our point about budget, they have more budget flexibility than we do. And even though it's all centrally mandated in terms of the Central Military Commission and the Politburo and all that stuff, I think the people who actually execute at the, the the leaders who are assigned these jobs, I think they're actually given a quite a bit of autonomy. And you might argue they're given quite a bit more autonomy than some of our acquisition leaders. Maybe I think you're hitting on some really good points. And maybe the fact that they don't have to deal with a baseline and a cost estimate that was done 10 years ago, and they don't want to have a breach that they have to report up and all these all these different little pieces to me that kind of pick away at our ability to integrate commercial tech the fact that they don't have those things maybe just makes them open to, oh, hey, that's ready. This commercial company has this thing ready. I'll, yeah, let's try that. And they may try four or five other things be- because they don't have to get approval at super high levels for each individual thing. They can do that. And they also don't have the not invented here kind of attitude because nothing was invented <laughs> yeah. there. And now they're on the, the, the frontier and they're starting to invent here, but <laughs> they, yeah. didn't have, they didn't have that parochial, or I guess... They, they had more humility about what they could do and they were willing to, I think, do things more like the United States and the West used to do in the 18th century and early 19th, be tinkerers rather than these right. like big business teams that like plan things out and make it work. Yep. This is where AFWorks Prime, I really hope that we can start scaling some of those things to the AFWorks Prime initiatives because I think that's, it's almost like we're going back to the Wright brothers with some of the, some of those big AFWorks bets where, oh, okay, you want to do a flying car, something we haven't done before. Yeah, let's fund that. Let's support that. Let's help them test on our ranges. Let's do all the things that they need to do, give them the government support. And then once they prove their muster, let's, let's start buying those things. So hopefully we can adopt and go back to that a little bit, but I really hope that China adopts our system really soon. All right. So the next one here, uh, this one actually wasn't in the list, but I'd like to talk about it anyway, as you were a former Air Force officer and a current Air Force reservist, <laughs> which is where you are right now. Ooh. So the, the headline Ooh, here wow. is, and I know you've heard about this, Air Force General says Army's long range precision fires goal. It's stupid from Defense News. So there's a couple of perspectives here. The first one is General Timothy Ray. I don't know if you listened to the whole Aerospace Advantage podcast on that. I listened to it a few days ago. I thought it was pretty pretty excellent, but it also, like, I could see how it would also create a lot of uh, concern on the other side. So Timothy Ray here says, who leads the Air Force Global Strike Command? That's him. I just think it's a stupid idea to go and invest that kind of money that recreates something that the services has already mastered and we're already doing that right now. And then Air Force, so John Hyten, who's the vice chairman of the chief of staff and also an Air Force uh, guy, he said that the joint warfighting concept calls for all the services to be able to conduct long, long range strike missions. And so I think from his point of view, and I think from the overall point of view, my point of view, is that this is something important enough that you can have some redundancy between the services and it's important enough. And if we don't have enough certainty about what will work, taking a little bit of a multi-pronged strategy is important, but I'd like to hear your feedback on that. Yeah, it's funny too, because General Ray used to be my supervisor. So when I was in the Pentagon, I'm surprised actually to hear him use that that harsh of words with, with <laughs> regards to the army. I was a little bit surprised because he's pretty diplomatic, but it's in the point, format, right? Like when you're on a podcast with a guy, Deptula, 
you got right. you, know, you feel comfortable you can speak your mind and maybe he didn't realize that all the, <laughs> the news outlets actually listen to <laughs> aerospace advantage and, and watch what mitchell's is doing yeah i was wondering if uh, general mcconnell gave him a call afterwards and was like hey <laughs> what's up but I think his point was right, like that we don't have, the, the department is going to be cash strapped. There is, there's not going to be room for every service to do every mission. So to say that you have to operate in every domain in the multi-domain environment is, is probably a good criticism because there's no way that we could afford that. It would be like the Air Force going out and starting to build a Navy and stuff like that. We have to, I think we do have to pick what missions go to what services. And we all need to work work together as a joint force. So the Navy and Army will never probably control as many satellites as the Air Force. And that's that's why the Space Force was stood up, because it's more of a joint thing. And so now the Army and Navy are going to move over into the Space Force and become a joint thing. So I think the same thing is going to be true here. I think the Air Force is going to maintain that long strike mission, long range strike mission. But I think the Army is trying to carve out the fact that even if you look at the European theater where if Russia came over the border, Russia is going to use a lot of long-range fires as part, as part of their tactics, what they do. And so they're going to be launching all kinds of stuff as they bring their tanks and other you know stuff across and try to take land. So if they wanted to do a full-scale invasion. And I think you'll see some of that, too, in China, where if China tries to take some of the islands or they're trying to go into Korea or whatever crazy stuff would, might go down in the South China Sea scenario. But so I think they do probably need some long-range fires, but it's probably the more shorter-range stuff. And I think somebody made the point on the CISS article I read about, yeah, maybe it makes sense from like a Japan or a Guam, like those kind of long-range to support maybe ground force uh, invasions or defending islands or something like that. So it seems like there's a sweet spot there where they don't need the whole long-range strike mission, but maybe there is a piece of it. It goes to the Army since they do actually run the missile defense piece. So they have a lot of experience with, with missiles and things like that. So it's not like a completely new space to them. But but yeah, that was pretty that was pretty interesting to read. I, I hadn't listened to it yet, but I, I will. All right. Since you're, I would say, taking the Air Force point of view here. I'll, I, like the, I was defending like, the Army a little bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'm, I, I just like pulled up the CRS report because I was like, okay, let's just look at the, the programs that are in this long-range fires portfolio. And the weird thing was, under this, the section that said total cost, they were like, there was zero figures. It was like, okay, where's the total cost? <laughs> What's all this about? But the five main areas are extended range cannon artillery. So that boosts you from 30 kilometers to 70 kilometers. Precision strike missile, strategic long range cannon, and that can fire a projectile at hypersonic speeds up to a thousand miles <laughs> and engage air artillery, missile systems, command control targets. The next one here is the long range hypersonic weapon, which is actually using in part the common hypersonic glide body. So that's a common effort with the Army, Navy, Air Force, and MDA. And then the last kind of part of this portfolio is modifications of existing Navy SM6s and UGM-109 land attack missiles. So it looks like they have like a portfolio here. And it's not like they just have one big old program that you can say, well, that thing is $100 billion, right? Like a Columbia-class submarine program. And if we just cut that out, we save the nation a whole bunch of money. It seems like some of them were like, we'll get 2000 of quantity for $2 billion or something. And when I look at what was in the CARES Act, right? Oh, I want $100 billion for broadband internet for people who don't have it. $100 billion. Eli had a great tweet on this. He was like, dude, for everyone that doesn't have high-speed broadband internet, you could buy them a Starlink terminal and then give back the government $80 billion. <laughs> it's just, so what I'm trying to say here is like for such a important mission and with such high uncertainty as to what will actually work, I don't think a few billion dollars is a massive investment to make and is this huge duplication and overlap problem. But I'd like to hear your... Yeah, I, yeah, I guess the only thing I'd say is, is the... Yeah, I think the IRCA and all the other those long range cannons and stuff like that. I think that's probably more for, for troop defense and things like that. I, I think those are, I don't really think those are strategic weapons myself. You were talking about 70 miles, a thousand miles. That's probably more strategic, but that's why they call it a strategic long range cannon. Exactly. Yeah. They named that well. 
so that one's strategic. Okay. Which, that they were talking, <laughs> um, like, I still haven't heard of which one they're talking about, like, in that portfolio. Is it like, I don't think that, are they really going after the long range hypersonic weapon? Because there's a common glide body there. So are they really just, and then the other two are artillery and the last one is modifications. So what are they really just saying? Let's kill the precision strike missile program. Is that what they're saying or? I, I think he was saying, yeah, and it looks like that strategic long range cannon is like a, still like an S&T project. So there's still a little ways out on that, but the earth a lot of dollars then. Yeah. That one still has a little ways to go. It looks like, so yeah, maybe that one is, does make sense for the army to have. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the compromise, but yeah, I think it would be a mistake. And I think the army probably will wind up doing the, the com- common uh, hypersonic missile because they really are good at that. That is their their bread and butter. They've been doing it with MDA and so the missile defense stuff and with they basically build all the ammo for the department. So it probably makes sense for them to have that program, but whether they they get into the hypersonic business where they're developing and maintaining whole large fleets of hypersonic missiles, as well as the Air Force having whole large fleets of hypersonic missiles. And if they each have a common mission then it probably is like a duplication and probably maybe not the best way to, to to go after that. Or maybe they each have a slightly different mission and they can carve up where where each would be used and in what theater and what, what type of operation and things like that. So I don't know. I think there's a lot more to parse here and to figure out, but they definitely need to be in that game. But do, how much do they need to be in the game? Do they need to be launching hypersonics from from aircraft? That was one thing I read in, in one of the CSS, CIS reports was that they were going to develop an airplane to be able to launch the hypersonics. That that seems like a stretch too far. Yeah. So from your view, they should just develop a helicopter to go launch that. What I think about is the Army with their Jupiter program for ballistic missiles. Basically, I don't think the Air Force would have really solved that problem for another five, 10 years if the Army didn't solve the problems for them. So I think the problem is almost like we don't have to presuppose this whole production and logistical tale and just say, when we get to that stage, we will rationalize and hopefully the best of breed will be, or there will be learning going on between them and sharing of information. And they're not just these like weird little stovepipes. But I guess my overall point is, I just don't know. I think a, a lot of times these things are really hard for a person like me, a layman that's also not having classified information that's really critical to making these choices. It's hard to to suss that out, but it seems like this is the point of why the Department of Defense was created in 1947 with the National Security Act. And then this is the point again, (laughs) like why we created the planning, programming, budgeting system in the 1960s to resolve these inter-service conflicts through central control, right? Like the central control and the ability to eliminate duplication and overlap was the one thing that was like, this is what we're doing. And clearly that has failed. There's just no other way to, to say it, but like the entire intention behind those reforms, we're still having the exact same problems. And it just seems, oh, is it not that the secretary of defense is just having these discussions with the services far upstream of it, just exploding in, into the press. And that's what the secretary, if the secretary of defense is there for anything, it should be to make these types of like strategic decisions that have big budget impacts in terms of major weapons and not necessarily to say which one should start them. But if they're all starting, like there's a bunch of things going on now, we're at that point where it's right for the secretary of defense to come in and say, what's what? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't know. My sense is that, and this is, this was part of our, in our paper and in, in the uh, five by five was that I, I don't think we talk about strategic capabilities enough. We talk about nukes. So yeah, except accepting the whole nuke discussion, but when it comes to like, airplanes and ships and things like this capabilities that are pretty expensive require a lot of a lot of strategic thinking a lot of planning how you employ these is going to require like basing decisions and there's a lot that goes into this and i agree with you i think sometimes the department is focused on a lot of other stuff and it seems like some of the strategic stuff doesn't always get either the it might get the attention, but you don't always understand the rationale or like the what alternatives were, were thought about or how I always like I would like to see joint staff's opinion. I guess General Hyten did say that all the services should have should have multi-domain expertise, but I'd like to actually see what is the joint staff's detailed plan for that. Is it in their plan that the Army would have these long range fires or is it in the Air Force plan? Like how do they see the joint force coming together? So I think that kind of stuff would be really helpful for the public and for 
people in the department to know. And it's hard to hard to tell if those conversations happen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not really so concerned with making them public, but I am concerned that it yeah. like that those conversations are have being had and decisions are being made it, that are like well-informed decisions. I don't need sure. to know like precisely where we are this hypersonic program, but anyway, so let's I was move thinking on. more on the congression. I was thinking more on the congressional piece, how you can say it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on here and let's just stick with the kind of rules admissions fight because the Navy seems to have the best case here, right? They seem to be riding high on their ability to be relevant in the in the China fight. And so the headline here is Representative Luria letter to President Biden on maritime-centric national defense strategy, USNI News. And she's complaining the standard thing. Hey, we've fallen from almost 600 ships in the 80s to 375 in the 90s and below 300 in, in the 2000s. And there's just like a looming naval crisis and we, we need to like build back up, not just manned, but unmanned shipbuilding capacity. And of course, that's not surprising since she represents the Virginia 2nd Congressional District, which is right around Norfolk. <laughs> but <laughs> it's interesting that she's calling for a maritime centric national defense strategy. And I think not only does that mean they're actually going to come out with the national defense strategy rather than just riding on the coattails of the last one. But it seems like this one's almost going to feel like a Key West Accord. Like, who is given, like, primary responsibilities and who's sussing out these kinds of, you know, roles and responsibilities? And I guess that's a big question in the budget-constrained environment, which is funny because the budget's still pretty large. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess it depends on where the China definitely has dominated everybody's thought process on national security. So it seems somewhat logical to me to say, that the Navy is probably going to bear the bulk of that burden in terms of the a fight in, in a Taiwan, Japan kind of situation. So if we are really pivoting to China, then maybe it makes sense to look towards some of those new, uh, those new capabilities that might be needed in that fight. I know like the littoral combat ship was kind of part of that whole construct and the new destroyers and subs. And I, I think the focus on numbers is unhealthy. I think there's been, been some good literature on that, that it's not about the numbers, it's about the type of capabilities and how you employ it. But it definitely seems if we really think that China is our greatest threat and the Navy is not prepared for that, if they're not having, they don't have the right ships or they don't have the readiness levels are not there, then there needs to be some good investments into that. So I guess I'm not like I don't think she's totally wrong. And and so maybe that is the way to go. The Navy's definitely going to have a lot to do in that theater. Yeah, I'm pretty sympathetic as well. And I think it just needs to start with those longest lead items. And it's, we need to get back up capacity at shipyards for maintenance work, but also for building work. And I just don't see it. Those, that's just going to take some time, at least a couple of years to even get the machine tools and make those yeah, investments yeah. in the infrastructure. I feel like that's like the first thing that needs to happen. But I guess it's also interesting. We don't know what's going to happen with unmanned ships and what will those requirements be? And will that just be a bunch of wasted capital investment into these legacy things? And like the whole, the next large surface combatant that might, that's supposed to replace DAG 1000. Maybe if if USVs come along faster, maybe that just gets fully replaced. I'm I'm not sure. That seems to be a consideration there on, on ramping up capacity. And this kind of goes to me to the whole, I think we've talked about before about like modular manufacturing. And so whatever new shipyards are set up or that infrastructure is invested in, it should be invested in a way that allows it to scale to to doing smaller unmanned ships. And maybe the the ships that, that DARPA came up with for logistics where, you know, you put supplies on them and they're smaller scale to be able to do some of the smaller carriers, maybe to get the, uh, the manufacturing equipment, the tooling and all of that in a way that allows you to not just be focused on one platform. I really think like something, I'm not a shipbuilding expert, but I feel like there needs to be more thought process in how to do that, as well as some of these other plants that, that, the, that the, you know, Air Force and Army have so that they, they're not just, they're not just focused on only being able to build a tank in a factory. They could change up some of the tooling without spending a gazillion dollars and also build uh, troop, troop carrying vehicles or, or whatever, or unmanned unmanned robotic vehicles or something. So I hope we can move in that direction. I, I feel like I haven't seen enough literature on that lately. And then be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, they have a bunch of they have a it seems like a ton of USV and UUVs that they're rolling out and they're just going across the whole board of large, medium and small kind of almost simultaneously. But 
it was interesting on the carrier front. I, they were saying like the carrier wings used to have 90 aircraft on de- uh, on a carrier and now it's 66. So it's not hmm. quite being cut down a third. It makes sense. Like some of these, uh, they might just have a larger logistical tail. Can they operate? I don't, I'm not really sure. Is, if, is it the space or is it like you just can't operate 90 at in a sortie and keep those going? So you just have to, it just makes sense to reduce you know, the number of aircraft that are on board for efficiency's sake. They were saying they couldn't fit UAVs, 90 UAVs on the on the carrier? No, not not UAVs, just a carrier today with its complement of strike aircraft. And all this, oh. it's just, it used to be 90 and now it's 66 or something in the 60s range. But there's a couple other articles here. One is that Bath Shipyards is looking for a new shipbuilding contract while awaiting the Navy's next ship. You know, that what we're just talking about there, the next large surface combatant. That's not slated for construction until fiscal year 2027. So they're looking for basically additional additional units of, of existing Arleigh Burke class destroyers to keep the workforce there and to keep the production facilities going and to keep in-house knowledge. And the second one related to this is Austell USA is adding steel shipbuilding capability and they're positioning their, themselves for being the second yard in the frigate build. So the the whole concept there is that the Navy will have a follow yard in fis- starting in fiscal year 2023 to increase production of the Constellation class frigate. And, and then they would go to four ships being produced each year by 2025. So actually some of that expansion of Austell was provided with a $50 million grant under the CARES Act. So the CARES Act is getting all around. So lots of news <laughs> going on, I think, in, in the shipbuilding world as they're kind of positioned. They feel per, they probably feel pretty good about where the budget and where the shipbuilding's going. So it's at least flat, right? <laughs> like the numbers are always right. like Battle Force 2045. They're trying to get to 500 and there's going to be a mix of man on man. It looks like they're pretty confident there. I read, a, I read an article today about the Russians building up their forces in the Arctic. And they're they're planning to make a big play for for all the resources up there and for some of the trade trade shipping lanes and things like that. So I really hope if we can expand our shipbuilding capacity, maybe we can get some some more Coast Guard cutters or Navy cutters out there so we can get them up into the into the Arctic and start pushing the Russians back a little bit. Because I think right now I think we have one or something like that, isn't it? I think we only have one ice ice cutter. We do. So. Yeah. So yeah. Betting on global warming, man. You don't need an ice cutter. There mm. ain't no ice. It's funny that the whole global warming. I, I just don't under, I don't know whether like folks in the Navy really consider like global warming to be this old, like this big thing that they need to be thinking about or whether it's just a reaction to the public's perception and what they think is important and the Navy's ability to just be like, Hey, we're still around. We're not only we're relevant in this big thing over here, and we have, a, and it's a big threat to us as well, and we should take a lead in that. I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it just seems like, for me, it's just I feel like the DoD should do DoD stuff, and not everything needs to be done through the DoD because it's convenient and there's a bunch of money there. I do think this was back during the Obama years when the National Defense Strategy had climate change in it, and I think a lot of it was driven. If you looked at some of like the bases in Florida, the the amount of storms, the floods, it was really disruptive for, for a lot of our missions down there. We were moving F-22s from Tyndall and finding, trying to find other bases for them. The Cape, I mean, Cape Canaveral is having issues. And the you know, thing was just a big storm. Like that, it's not like the but, sea just rose 50 feet and took out Tyndall, right? There was just a hurricane. Yeah, but the, and we can say that's global. That I can get you, I get you yeah, on that. But. Yeah, yeah. I think flooding is an issue for, I think the Navy probably will see it before a lot of other folks because their bases are all on the shore. But as as, there, as flooding becomes more common or coastal, the, the coast starts to rise. Yeah, that will will be a big issue because trying to move all those bases or yeah, finding new homes will be really expensive and challenging. So, Well, here's the floating dry docks, right? I'd love, I'd love to see a bunch of those big <laughs> ass things come back. <laughs> so basically you want a sea city. You want us to build some sea cities there? That we want. I don't know. I just like those old pictures from World War II where they had a bunch of those like forwardly stationed. But yeah. so let's innovative. move on. <laughs> We've been lingering for a while. This is an interesting one here. Nearly half of DOD employees got more productive when they started teleworking from military.com. Of the more than 54,600 survey respondents who told the IG about their telework experience, 
88 switched to full-time or part-time telework between mid-March 2020 to late August. Nearly 79% of those who answered questions on productivity felt that their productivity increased and left the comment that they they experienced fewer distractions and interruptions while teleworking. So you also have been pushed onto the teleworking front. I've been there for a little mm-hmm. bit longer since since I left the Pentagon. So that I've been doing it for a little bit over two years. But what's your experience been? It's funny because I, when I left the Pentagon, I was trying to become a teleworker as a government employee. And I, I wasn't able to make it work because everybody was just pretty down on the whole idea. So it was a little bit ironic that after I left, not too many months after I left, they COVID forced everybody to go remote. I feel like the military has a little bit of a of an old school paradigm in the sense of I need to see, I need to see my people sitting there at their desk in order for, to feel like something productive is going on. But the fact of the matter is that unless you're doing classified stuff on a regular basis, most of what we do is over email or IT systems. You you do need that in person, face-to-face for certain things. Absolutely. But there's no reason to me why we weren't doing some level of telework in years ago. Because even if you just let people do it once or twice a week from home to focus on those tasks where you need to really focus and put your head down, it's hard to do that in an office. And the military and especially is very social, not to say it's different than anywhere else, but it's very social and there's a lot of chit chat and a lot of meetings. Military loves meetings. And so sometimes I can really sympathize with not being able to get some of your thinking work done because you're being disrupted. So these results didn't really surprise me too much. Yeah, but I also feel, I guess... I, I don't have the same experience because I'm not like straight up working in, in the consulting gig anymore, but it just feels like there's no, at least when I was in the Pentagon, it was like, I'm at the Pentagon, I'm working. And then when I go home, now I get to read my Merton Peck and Frederick Scherer <laughs> histories on defense acquisition, Or, but that's my time. <laughs> and now it's just, there is no, there, there's no such thing as work-life balance. Work is life and life is work. <laughs> and those things go on it, it continuously. Now you're- and I've heard that was my life, but now it seems like everybody is shifting into that world. And it almost feels like you just jam pack more stuff. Like it, you potentially don't have, unless you block it off yourself. I don't have a four hour stretch here where I get to sit and think. No, I'm with you, man. I, I feel like I've worked, I work way harder working from home than I did in the office because I felt like there was that disconnect and you can go home and you don't think about work the whole time. But when you're, when you don't have that separation, it, yeah, it does get you on all the time and you feel like, when you're not working, like, oh, I should be, I should be working. So uh, fair point. I think mental health wise, we probably need to find that balance a little bit better, but yeah. yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the kind of two or three day a week you're in the office and two or three you're you're not in the office. That's always, I still like to just, I'll just walk to the library and just work there for a structured work environment. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So the next one here is what government needs to know about accelerators from FedScoop. When government calls for an accelerator, it's really calling for a way to work with emerging tech companies and accelerate their solutions onto contracts and into missions, not synonymous with incubators, angel investors, or co-working spaces. Typical accelerators provide education, mentorship, and financing to early stage companies and cohorts. So there wasn't really all that much from that article, but I thought that was a really good point because we people kept calling them accelerators like DIU and the AFWorks and the Naval X's and they're like accelerators and some of them actually do have accelerator type fields. I think some of the parts of AFWorks and Softworks are actually doing that but I feel like the general gist they shouldn't be called accelerators at all. (laughs) There are the one thing I'd say is there are some accelerators that like literally the, the whole organization or a part portion of the organization is dedicated to just taking like somebody that has an idea in a garage and that doesn't know anything about the government, doesn't have any idea how to find a customer or even how like to bid on a contract. So they're almost like pre-cibber in a way, although they're on the borderline of a cibber phase one. But they these accelerators basically give them kind of education on how the government works. They give them a sense of how to identify a problem that the government has that they can solve. So they go through the discovery process. And so I, I do think the accelerators have a place, but to Megan's point, and uh, I think she really did a good job in this article, is that there's so much prototyping out there, right? There's so many cyber projects that have been done. There's so many lab projects that have been done. There are a lot of prototypes. What we're, if we're, we've gotten pretty good at prototyping, I think, over the last few years. What we haven't got good at is pulling those prototypes in 
and actually making those companies successful by buying the product that they've been prototyping for us. So I, I really like her point about what the government needs is a scalarator, a next level model that accelerates proven government viable tech from the private sector into the federal market to improve mission outcomes fast and in a meaningful, sustainable way. So I think that's really good. I think we can think Steve Blank has been saying that. And yeah, I would love to see us do a better job at that. Let's take some of these prototypes and get them into programs and start showing the successes. So, yeah, I'm completely yeah. with you. I love that scalarator. And that's exactly right. Yeah. But again, I think like maybe the term accelerator, we, we do need whatever that next term is for what these guys are really trying to accomplish so that we can really focus on what that is. And I guess one of my issues there is just, it just feels so easy to say, we just need to scale them into programs of record. But what the hell does that mean? What is a program of record? Do I don't even want to like that whole construct of program of record is potentially the problem and you can't scale a rate until you broach that gap, right? Because not all of these guys are going to be like creating the next fully equipped combat drone. They're going to be doing interesting things that need some integration and, or they're like going to be a supplier to something on a program of record. And it's just not clear to me how those, I think a lot of times it's just, you got to go hustle and figure that out yourself. We'll get you these kind of zipper ones, zipper twos, but you really got to figure it out for yourself. And I, I don't know, maybe that's the right answer. There's no other way than like entrepreneurs just have to be entrepreneurial. <laughs> but then what do these scalarators bring to the table besides those early stage things? Are they just like the outsourced market research for the program executive offices who, but then how does that whole relationship work? That's no, I agree with you on the program of record. Maybe we should stop saying that, especially since we're I think you and I and others are trying to push from a program-centric model to a you know, more portfolio-centric uh, uh, approach. Maybe we should stop saying program of record because it really might be a, a portfolio of record, right? Like you may already have a number of platforms within a portfolio that are doing certain missions, but you have certain gaps, or as like Dan Pat says, like seams or something in, in there. And so some of these commercial technologies may actually fill some of those seams and be a program, quote unquote, of itself to meet a need. And it could just be an application that that does some really interesting stuff that is important for mission planning or for executing a mission or something. Yeah, it, could, it seems like you're right. Like Maybe we should stop talking about that because it doesn't necessarily have to be injected into a program of record. But at the same time, I do think there there needs to be some help, right? Because for one, the PEOs are really busy. The PMs are really busy. And then these companies are really busy working on their solutions. And sometimes I think you do need somebody in the middle there to be like, hey, we been, we know this PO, we know this PM, and they have this problem. And we think your thing could actually you know, fix that problem. So I think the idea of the connectors is what I like, people to help connect the dots a little bit for people that may not have the time to be constantly doing scanning of the technology space. But I think this goes, you made a point about continuous market research. I think that is the best practice that we need to build into the acquisition system is it's not like you start a program and then you finish it and you're done. You should be always looking at the market to say, is this the best thing? Should I be putting my money towards this? And maybe you need to pivot and do something different. Yeah, definitely. And I always wonder, does the PEO, like does each program office and the PEO have their organic kind of capability of continuous market intelligence or do we still... Or does that interact with these, like the Afworks and the decelerator or the scalarators, whatever we're calling them? Because it seems, it feels like the Af like for the Air Force, Afworks is sitting in the middle of that Venn di diagram. Here's, we should know what the PEOs are up to and what they need and what their problems are and where they're trying to go. And we should also know what's out there in the commercial tech world and, in, and, and like also DOD unique plays, but what's going on there and make those kinds of matches. And maybe it's not for them to do that. Maybe it is for the, the entrepreneurs to go hustle and for the PEOs just to have a market intelligence to go bring it over. But I like having multiple structures and multiple ways of going at things like that. And so I want to just yeah, move they're, on to this other okay, part here. Sure. To rebuild manufacturing, the US needs to beef up the Small Business Innovation Research Program from TechCrunch. Nice. We need at least 10 times more cyber funding. So he's looking at it's 3 billion now. He wants it to get up to 30 billion. And he wants these to be focused on quote, cr critical strategic areas, especially decarbonization and advanced manufacturing. 
any quick thoughts there? Yeah, I think those are some great areas to to go after. And I think Sibbers Sibbers is great for for getting some of these vendors who maybe are not thinking about doing business with the government or maybe they're a perfect government customer, but they need some help. And then also with what AFWorks is doing with connecting the VCs, maybe we're a source of funding to actually keep them viable until they can commercialize. But I think I think you did some stuff with that one Sibber study and you had that brother or sister on, I think. And make sure that there's a lot of repeat business amongst the Sibbers community. And so I I think probably we could probably target the money better. And if those are priorities, advanced manufacturing, which is, I think, really critical, then we should start targeting some Sibbers and maybe it could use some more money. But I think I personally think our focus should be more on what we just talked about with the scaling to try to get better at connecting that valley of death for all the stuff that is already out there and that's not being utilized. Let's take a shot at getting that in and then we can start to expand Sibber to bigger or less. But yeah, so that's not really a Sibber issue. You're saying like instead of add $27 billion to Sibber and a lot of yeah. that would actually be for non-DOD things supposedly with decarbonization, but yeah, you could just maybe. take that kind of money and put it into a series of different types of scaling funds or some kind of portfolio that RE owns that can allow those things. So the issue isn't, there's not enough cool things out there. The, the issue is there's a bunch of cool things that we have no ability to onboard that into the real world. Yep. No, exactly. So the next one here is a status report, Navy unmanned aerial subsurface platforms from USNI news. So I like this. I just like this quote here because I think it's the right way of thinking about these things. The Navy wants to emphasize the development of enablers for unmanned systems, the common interfaces and control stations, the networks, the secure data formats, the autonomy behaviors, as it pursues a hybrid manned unmanned fleet for the future. And I think that's just incredibly farsighted in a way to kind of get those infra those kind of like basic elements down. And usually we're always thinking about, I want the output now, right? Like I want this ship that at least drives around autonomously soon, but it's, you can get there a little bit slower in terms of the hardware build and actually getting something out. But if you get the guts right and you get the architecture, then you're really unleashing. You'll get not only the real capability that you actually wanted faster, but you will be able to unleash a lot more different types of capabilities uh, than you would if you just built the one thing, the leanest that it is, and just get it to operate without really thinking about these um, important questions of architecture and data rights and the ability to upgrade these things. Yeah. No, I think this is this is good. I think there have been a lot of, there is a lot of work or has been a lot of work done on this on both the Air Force and Navy side as well. I don't think they've characterized it quite like this, but I, I know for the Army, the Combat Development Center and, and their autonomy shop, I know they've been doing a lot of thinking on this. They have libraries of autonomous modules and they have the different data formats and stuff like that. So I think there is some work and ABMS clearly plays into some of this stuff too with the networks and interfaces and like easy access to data. So even with the AI piece, it, it's going to play into this is these unmanned systems are probably going to need access to a lot of data in order to do, in order to perform the behaviors that they need to do. So I think, I think there's a lot going on this front. I think it's been maybe a little disjointed or not as cohesive. So I really like what the Navy's doing here and try to take a really cohesive look at it and say, yeah, we have all these unmanned platforms we know about. We're going to have more in the future. Let's try to, you know, come up with some kind of commonality and trust. And so that if we build something because I think that's the biggest one with these is the trust piece is to have something work autonomously. It really has to be a high belief factor that it's not going to do something crazy. And instead of, instead of delivering, instead of delivering a, uh, what's, what's this one? Undersea, manned undersea vehicle, instead of going to where it's supposed to go, it goes to the enemy shore and drops off a bunch. So you got to build up that trust. So I think that's a really big piece of this is if they can get this commonality right, then when they bring some new platform on, maybe it already has, there's already a level of built-in trust because people know what standards it's going to use. They know the, the data pieces and how it will be controlled and stuff like that. So I, I do like this. Yeah, definitely. Of course, this stuff has been going on for a while. Like in the Navy, I, I, I guess with the Aegis radar, they made that open mission system was the common data library. It took them more than a decade to figure it out. And that's the problem mm -hmm. is like just building up that kind of 
technical skill in the government to get that right. And it's a lot of trial and error. But the, the army is doing really amazing stuff, as you, you brought up with the robotic combat vehicle and a bunch yep. of other yep. programs that they have. And they're using the open commercial, open architecture or the, the data library, the ROS M, which is they're just a part of the army is like a participant in this ecosystem and this open source library that's being maintained by a bunch of commercial people. And that keeps it relevant. So I, that, I feel pretty good about that rather than some of these closed feeling open systems, architecture, working groups. And then it just, I don't know. It just feels like when you have some kind of platform that you're putting all of this into, you just get the money and you're able to execute better. For like ABMS, what if instead of rapid, like having ABMS as its own program, if they just did that in the background and just coordinated, potentially had a portfolio architect, but not make it like a major program. And just like each system does it by themselves, right? Like the Skyboard program has a piece of it and the RQ-180 has a piece of it, whatever that is. But it just seems like they're like the Air Force being so open with <laughs> their, their, striving for these common interfaces and that's their program it's just where's the shiny hardware that goes with it if there was a shiny hardware maybe we would have given you the flexibility to go out and actually do the thing that you wanted to do yeah that's a good point i, I think you have your right the fact that it's not really that sexy to talk about building up data libraries and getting the infrastructure in place and and all of that it, it doesn't it doesn't ring as like a real capability yeah maybe you're right maybe in terms of marketing or how this is rolled out in the future you should come up with the data standards and stuff simultaneously with fielding some unmanned platforms because it does it makes a better business case probably. But I am excited to see if you look at all these ones and that, that they show here for these unmanned aerial platforms, by not having the humans in the loop, it also makes this so much more achievable. The development risks and everything else are so much lower. So yeah, it's probably the Navy probably is is doing this right by 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 showing this portfolio of unmanned vehicles that could play in the in the new domain that they're building. So I wanna Wrap up here with something related. This headline is Navy Air Force team on new fighter as Navy aims for 50% robot jets from Air Force magazine. And I think this was actually pretty interesting because I hadn't heard about what where they're going with all this. But the NGAD, of course, is next generation air dominance. Quote, NGAD will be a family of systems for both the Air Force and the Navy. The two will likely be different as far as the outer mold line just based on the different services needs, but a lot of internal mission systems will be similar and will have open mission architecture, Harris said. This will enable competition in industry and enable us to use the best of breed. Open mission systems mean that if a subsystem isn't performing as the Navy needs it to, or is too costly to maintain, you have the ability to replace it without vendor lock. So I feel it's funny because this feels like the way that they should have done the Joint Strike Fighter, right? Like, it's, it seems like they did that backwards. They're like, we want it physically to look the exact same, but we don't care that the commonality went from 75 to 25. Or we do care, but that doesn't stop us from giving you more and more money to go do it. So this way, they're almost like, we just want the commonality in the mission systems and the architectures for like software and data exchange. It just makes so much sense, right? The corrosion from the sea, the need for more wing area for to be able to land and take off. Like the requirements of a fighter are just different when you're taking off on a carrier versus when you're taking off on land. It just feels like that's the way they should have gone a while ago. But I'm glad to see that they're sticking to their guns, that NGAD will be a family of systems. And it's not like this one big weapon system to rule them all or potentially one for the army and one for the air force. Like an F-15 and an F-14 or an F-16 and an F-18. And it just feels like that's pretty right to me. So what's your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I will say the F-15 is a very different aircraft in terms of like its structure. It bigger. It's bigger and it has a lot more titanium and it has, it has some tail hooks and it has some different features on it. But yeah, I think I was really glad to see the Navy get wrapped up into NGAD because I feel like they're going to use a lot of the successes of each and how they developed that. I am, I'm still a little bit surprised to hear them talk about it as one platform. I always viewed it as like being disaggregated into multiple platforms with different missions. So that's interesting. I thought it was interesting too about that the decision on whether the Navy's NGAD is going to be manned or unmanned is still TBD. Yeah, glad to see the Navy in there. Be interesting to see where they go with this and how different this is from from the F-18 or F-14s or F-35Cs that they have now. What trade space does this give them to do something that maybe they weren't able to do before in terms of designing an aircraft specifically for 
for carrier missions. Yeah, it was interesting that the Navy, the, the guy was, he sounded like he he was like, yeah, it's going to be manned, but I'm open to unmanned, but I'm thinking it's manned. <laughs> but that's one of my questions with this whole thing as well is, okay, NGAD is NGAD for now, and you might have one program element, and the Air Force had, they requested a little bit more than a billion, and they got 900 million out of that. But you can roll with that for a little while, but once you like start coming out with aircraft, those things are going to be their own program. Like That portfolio of NGAD is definitely going to get broken out and everything's going to be put into these little weapon system line items and you're not going to be able to treat it like a family of systems anymore. And so that's what like my worry as this thing kind of matures that it just gets very much regularized. And so it's not really, but I think one of the, the issues is I think they still want to go with multiple different types of airframes potentially, but they just want to get the software architecture down and pretty common so that they can push updates and, and use modular kind of plug and play is the, the term that they always like to use for those types of systems and, and combat systems and hopefully have just like one kind of heads up display unit and computer and allowed the software instead of having to put like a different hardware to, to operate each software on the jet every single time and stuff like that. So I, I mean, I, I think that's what they're going for, right? Like when you say platform, I'm thinking like, the digital platform and the physical platform will be different as long as it can fit the size, weight, power constraints of that digital platform. Yeah, that's what I would hope. I would hope that NGAD is, you know, a suite of technologies, but like you said, it has, it has different, it has maybe different applications for it. And they do talk about that, about performing roles of aerial tanking, electronic warfare and stuff like that. So I, I hope it does turn out to be a family of systems in terms of not just one platform that the Air Force does everything on and one platform that the Navy does everything on, but that it has different pieces, but that because of that plug and play aspect, you can migrate from the hardware without losing all of that goodness that you got from the software. And yeah, so maybe NGAD, to Dr. Roper's Century Series, maybe NGAD is the is the start of that. And this will turn into something something really great in terms of the new way of doing aircraft development and getting a little more competition in the system. On that optimistic note, we'll wrap up here. So thanks for joining <laughs> us. It's, it's been fun and we'll talk to you next time.